Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Geo and Joey Show. We're going to be talking about the dangers of mixing church and state and why Joey and I are not in favor of mixing the two. Joey, how are you doing today? Doing good. How are you doing, Joe? Better than I deserve, brother. Hey, look, you send me a, a little clip here from Michael Knows, and he talks about blue laws. And that's what we're going to get into first and the dangers of that. But before Michael Knowles talks about blue laws, he sets it up about the decline of religion in males. Let's listen to this clip. And then, Joey, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Aged white guys are killing themselves at a very high rate, at an increasingly high rate. We've talked about this for years. This is led in, in large part to the decline in the American life expectancy. We've had several years in recent memory where the life expectancy has decreased. This really just started for the first time not that long ago. Why? Because of deaths of despair among middle-aged white Americans. Now there's a study. It's a new study. And so, you know, when there's a study, then we can finally believe it. There's a study out that shows that a major driver of these deaths of despair for middle-aged white guys is loss of religion. In other words, there's now a scientific study to prove what normal people have intuited the whole time. What anybody with two brain cells and any even iota of common sense has known from the very beginning. When you lose hope, you despair. Because despair means a loss of hope. Shocking. Stop the presses. This paper was just circulated by the National Bureau of Economic Research, found that the increase in deaths of despair among middle-aged white Americans, which started in the early 90s, was the aftermath of a declining religiosity in the United States, specifically by the same group. It's true that religion in general has declined, but especially for these now middle-aged white guys, they left the church in very large numbers. You might be able to think of your own memories, depending on how you were raised, of maybe you went to church as a kid, maybe you didn't. And even if you did daddy always go to church, I bet in a lot of cases it was just mommy took the kids to church and daddy stayed home and watched football. That phenomenon exploded over the last 30 years. Why did this happen? Why did this group leave the church? I think in large part that group left the church because of supposed reforms of the churches that went on during the 1960s. You saw this, you certainly saw this in the mainline Protestant churches, which at this point are basically like LGBT far left morning tea hour. I uh, think, think of the poor Episcopalians or the Methodists have gone completely, and certain shades of Presbyterians have gone completely over the edge. You saw this in the Catholic Church too, even with the weight of 2,000 years of inertia and the magisterium and divine institution, certainly in my view. Even then, you saw in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, liturgical deformations that made even the Holy Mass kind of effeminate and shallow much more shallow than the tradition. You, you, you completely change the orientation of the mass. You now have the priest facing away from the altar, facing the people, frequently telling jokes, as a priest friend of mine once described, telling jokes like a ham actor in a dying vaudeville show who would do well to limit his repertoire to the little barbs that St. John told the Blessed Mother while her son bled on the cross. I think it drives the point home pretty well. You replaced beautiful singing and serious chanting and elevating music with a bunch of mariachi bands and these lame insipid ditties from the 1970s that weren't even cool 50 years ago. And then you expect a man to go there, a man who had previously been singing good old proper hymns, good old English hymns, or older chanting, and then he goes there and he's got to say, 
He's got to sing these 70 songs. I will raise you up on eagle's wings. And it's just so lame. And the only people that kind of deformation appeals to are squishes and libs and women. And only a specific subset of women who do not speak to a traditional and certainly not to a masculine culture. So for these reasons and more, men leave the church and now they're depressed and killing themselves. There's a political aspect to this as well, though. This group of economists looked at the impact of blue laws across the country and how the increased repeal of blue laws are followed by a loss in church attendance and an increased secularization. So we all agree, I think we could, even if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you don't go to church, you could, it's very easy for people to see how a change in the culture of the church can lead people to leave the church. What's a little harder for people to accept is how political changes in the government and the political order, even outside of the church, can drive this sort of thing. But it does. As I have tried to make clear for years, politics is downstream of culture. Sure, that's true. Movies and songs and rituals and things certainly affect the kind of laws that we're going to pass. But I do find that phrase to be a little bit of a libertarian cope and an excuse not to engage in the political order and not to wield just political power on the happy occasions that people give it to us. Because politics, though downstream of culture in some ways, politics can also lead the culture. Culture can be downstream of politics as well. East Germany is atheist today. West Germany is mostly religious, though of a kind of confused religiosity. Nevertheless, more than half of West Germans would call themselves religious. Why is that? Is that because of regional variations in bratwurst? No. It's because godless communism was the dominant regime in East Germany for much of the last century. And even after the Berlin Wall falls down, there are after effects of that from the political order onto the culture. So what do we do about it? I think we've got to take on both issues. Yes, at a personal level, yes, we should work on our own inner spiritual life. Of course, I'm not, I don't mean to diminish that. And then from the role level, cult referring to cults, referring even at a deep level to religion, we need to reform the churches so that they are more serious and reverent and conducive to men going to church. And we've got to change the political order such that the incentives in the cult, in our political order, are to go to church, are to have belief, are to have hope, are to be good citizens, are to perform acts of charity for one another, are oriented toward the common good. There's no neutrality here. The government is always going to be creating incentives and disincentives to different actions. For all of American history, we had incentives toward all of those good things and disincentives toward the opposite. We had blue laws. We had laws against adultery. We had blasphemy laws, for goodness sakes. Okay, so don't tell me that it's out of the American tradition to take these kinds of issues seriously. That is the American tradition. But now what do we have? We don't have a neutral political order. Now we've just got incentives for all the opposite stuff. We've got incentives for people to leave their families. <laughs> we've got incentives for people to do a bunch of drugs and get involved in weird sex stuff and ignore the common good and only pursue their own selfish interests. We've got interests. We've got incentives for that on the left and the right. We've got it throughout the whole culture. We've got incentives for during the COVID lockdowns, we shut down the churches. We keep the pot dispensaries open in California. Okay, those, th those are completely skewed incentives and disincentives. And it's having real effects. I know that a lot of people who are a little more skeptical of religion or they just, that's just not their thing. They say, oh, Michael, come on, who cares? We've got bigger issues to talk about. I don't know. Do you think there's a bigger political issue than Americans dying, than the average life expectancy decreasing, that a huge group of Americans middle-aged white guys just killing themselves and ODing on drugs because of a loss of hope. Is there any bigger political issue than the loss of hope, than the loss of faith, than the loss of charity? 
love philia central to any political order is that I don't think there's anything. I don't think tax rates are a bigger issue than that. I don't think deregulation is a bigger issue than that. I don't think immigration is a bigger issue. Immigration is a big issue. The loss of faith, hope, and charity, that's the whole game. And I think we ought to pay a little bit more attention to it. What caught your attention? Because I know there are a couple of things that stood out to me. The first thing I want to say is Michael's right about a lot of things. He's right when he's talking about the problems that our culture is having. He's right when he's talking about men in the church. I think he's even right when he's talking about many Protestant and Catholic churches that have liberalized on their standards and stuff. I think he's right in all that. And I think those are real. Where I think the danger arises is the mechanism for fixing that. So I think I, I think often of the quote from our second president, John Adams, where he said that our constitution was devised for a moral and religious people and was wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. That's true. But how do you get morality? How do you get righteousness? How do you get good citizens? And I think the difference here between what Michael's saying and what I would say is I don't believe enforced virtue ceases to be virtue. Andrew Clavin actually makes a point, another Daily Wire host, in his book of The Truth and Beauty, that the dilemma that we're facing is that we need virtuous people. We need virtue in our society in order to be free. Yet once you enforce virtue, it ceases to be virtue, right? That's the dilemma. And that was just the first thing, Instructor. Maybe we can get into the conversation. What was your thought? The whole notion of blue laws. I grew up in New York and New Jersey, and there's a town in Paramus that totally closed because blue laws still exist. But why are blue laws there? He mentioned it's part of the American fabric. But that doesn't mean it makes it right. Not everything that is old in the American tradition is correct. Because you have people that worship on different days. You have people who, like Jews who worship on Sabbath, Ben Shapiro. You have Muslims who have Friday as a holy day. Why should blue laws incentivize people to go to church on Sundays if that is not the religion that somebody may adhere to? So once again, you start going down that line with blue laws of whose religion are you incentivizing and what you said when you begin to force it it becomes tyrannical and not virtuous that is always catching my attention that's a really good point you make i think of just michael right so he was talking he was laying out there right he's a catholic obviously we're protestants but even among protestants right there are how many of us right and there's so many different doctrinal agreements i think there's core things we can agree on that's the point Mm -hmm. of this podcast right to how do we live together? But I think when when people start talking about church needs to needs to exercise this authority to put out its its dictates or what it believes is right, should we create a society right where each individual religious sect in each individual Protestant church or the Catholic Church are vying for power to enforce their dogma on other Christians or those who don't believe? And one other point that struck out at me too from Michael's comments is he, I remember, and I recommend everybody go back and watch our episode on church and state, but it's something that he does where he talks about blue law. We had laws, we had blue laws, we had laws against adultery. We had laws, he talked about like drug laws and stuff. He mixes different aspects of the natural law and he totally ignores the principle of the two tablets. So in other words, I actually agree in a certain sense with laws that with disprivileging adultery, right? I think adding no-fault divorce was a mistake, right? I think if you cheat on your wife, you should legally be held to account because you made a covenant, not just before the church, you made a covenant before the state to be honest and true to your family. If you abuse that, 
that is part of the natural law, the second tablet, which is man relating to man. So I agree there, but he mixes that in with blue laws, right, which enforce the fourth commandment or a version of the fourth commandment on everyone. And that's between man's relationship with God, right? That is outside of the realm of the government. So he's just, he's mixing that up where I think he should split it a little. And that's where we argue against that combination of church and state. He also mentioned blasphemy laws. Blasphemy laws are strictly a religious thing. Freedom of speech, even though I don't want anybody talking bad about Jesus or about God, freedom of speech allows that. And that becomes an issue of worship in which I'm not comfortable and you're not comfortable in government putting their two cents into when or when I cannot worship. And so by mixing the two goes back to his faith tradition. Catholicism in Italy, for example, in Rome, in the Vatican, that is a mix where you can get in trouble for violating certain laws based that are purely religious laws. And yet that's not something I'm comfortable with here in the United States. And it goes back to your religious tradition. Catholicism sees no problem with mixing the two. Yeah, absolutely. I think of, I think it comes down to, I think from a Christian perspective, what happened in heaven, right? How did this sin thing started? Lucifer, he spoke lies against the character of God. What did God do with that? Did God strike him dead right away? Did he enforce anybody who was listening to him to stop listening to him? No, he let it play out. He let him come to earth and play out the ideas of his government. Because ultimately, God is a God of love. What do we call forced love in our society? It's a dirty word. It starts with our right? Rape. God is not a cosmic rapist. God loves. And so that's why God allows freedom of worship. So who are we to, inf to, inf to force worship on our fellow men, right, when God doesn't enforce it on us? Yes. And he mentioned that I wrote some things down. He mentioned that right now in society, there seems to be an incentive by the government. He says the government is not neutral to incentivize everything that's lawlessness. That is true. But the appeal to that is not to swing with the religious club is to swing with natural law and to make arguments and references that are based on natural law, not an appeal to scripture nor an appeal to the church. Protecting our kids is something we can all agree on, whether we are religious or not. Laws against harming other people and stealing. And we've spoken about this, but it's interesting to hear somebody who, for the most part, we're fans of, say things that we disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. And we see the ramifications of this. So I know um, Michael's talking another place. I know he wrote a book called Speechless. It was actually a very good book, had really good information, where he basically, call, he basically criticizes the idea on the right of free speech absolutism, right? In other words, right? So we criticize the left and the woke for the PC standards and for censoring our speech on social media. And we criticize them by saying, no, we should be for free speech absolutism. And Michael says, no, we shouldn't be for free speech absolutism, right? People don't necessarily have a right to say whatever they want. But the danger there, and I see this kind of growing in certain spheres of the right, which I'm a part of the right, but I see growing there is this willingness to use the state to squash debate, right? We've seen that on the left already. They'll do that, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian baker, who doesn't want to exercise your speech to promote gay marriage, 
right? They'll come after you with the full force of the law, right? Luckily, the Supreme Court, which has Catholics and Jews on it, and but luckily it's ruled correctly on that. And it said he has a right not to say things he doesn't believe. And I totally agree with that. And I applaud the Supreme Court for that. But I see a growing desire among some people. It's, I think it's vengeance, really. It's like, we've been shut out for so long. We've been excluded. We're going to give back what we got. And that's not a great spirit. I, the, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not ours. But we have to do and I'm going to go back to Andrew Clavin again, because he's another Daily Wire host. But something he says is like, we can't become the left in order to fight the left. If we become the left, if we adopt their ways, guess what happens? We're just stuck in a place where there's no good guys. So yes, it's hard right, when we get censored by the left, right? whatever. It's hard to not want vengeance and to take the power back. But ultimately, we have to have the spirit of George Washington, the guy who could have been king, but he gave up the power for the sake of liberty and for the sake of creating a republic, is this lust for power over others. In other words, I'd say, let's go back to the Constitution. Let's go back to those good, and I do believe, Protestant principles upon which our country was founded, which include a separation of church and state. Yep, and I would add Judeo-Christian principles for those listening. But I like the point you make. We cannot fight the left using their own weapons because we don't agree in those using the state to squash speech and look there isn't anything really that is absolute freedom of speech we have agreed in society that you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater and there are laws against for example tarnishing the name of somebody else because if they sue you you can get to law and so free speech is we're proponents of it, but anything good can be taken to the extreme. But what we don't want to do is incentivize the state to begin to regulate. Because once the state has power, when does the state ever give up their power? It takes a revolution for that. And so we're not, that's not what we're advocating. What we're advocating is that everybody needs to have equal voice in the public forum and then let truth win out. And if we get back to that, I think we could be a better society for it. Yeah. And one, th one th point I'll make, right, is one thing that has happened, right, is people have conflated. So for instance, we talk about free speech, people will then talk about pornography, right? And people have conflated, I think wrongly, pornography, which is an action with speech. And so in other words, if I say, oh, I'm against pornography, some people will say, oh, well, you're not a free speech absolutist. No, I think I am but I don't consider pornography speech. Just like, I don't consider the guy walking down the street naked. I don't consider him exercising <laughs> his speech. He's assaulting others. He's committing sexual assault. That's not speech. So I would clarify there, of course, and I think that's a good point. But when it comes to ideas, when it comes to arguments, when it comes to, yeah, I despise communism. I think it's horrible. But yes, communists have a right to make their, and I have the right to rebut it, right? I have the right to say, hey, that's a load of crap, part of my language. <laughs> but I think that's important, right? That change of ideas, that's what makes this country, one of, the, one of the things that makes this country so great. And that's what makes freedom so, in a sense, dangerous, but needed for a free society. Because when ideas are involved in the public forum, you have to be persuasive. They have to be logical. And you have to hope that the majority of the people cling to truth. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is 
that only one side of the story is being told, usually through media, usually through our universities. And we've been warned by Martin Luther that unless truth is pursued in our universities, they'll be the gates of hell. And all this countercultural things that we're seeing today are being funneled through our universities. That's why we have to, those of us who have conservative values, have to fight for our children and have to fight to regain the public square so our ideas can have a full viewing by the majority of those who are looking to decide which side are they on. And the beauty I like about our side is that our ideas not only play out in the mind, but when you put them to practical purposes, they've been the bedrock of civilization for all of Earth's known history. And when we deviate from that, a great example is the French Revolution and everything where they try to throw away anything religious. It was a disaster. They even tried to do away with the seventh day week, which is established by God and tried a 10 day work week. And that was a disaster. So our side has stood the test of time and our side will stand the test of time, even though right now it doesn't always seem like it. Yeah, and I think we have the text of the First Amendment. So I'll read it now. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or, the, or of the press or of the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And what I love about this, right, is like we were saying earlier, right, there are many sects of Christianity. Obviously, right, the one that I'm a part of, right, I believe it's true. I wouldn't be a part of it. But I don't believe anyone should be forced to worship how I worship, to worship the way my conscience and my reading of scripture has led me to. And I don't want to be forced to worship the way someone else's conscience has led them to. And so I think our founders, when they wrote the Constitution, were brilliant in this way. And I, there was, listen, there was a lot of debate and there was a lot of argument that went into creating this. And ultimately, I believe that God had a hand in inspiring their minds. I'm not saying not inspiration in the same way as scripture, but in the way that God speaks to all of our hearts and works in our hearts when we're living for him. And I believe he had a place and he had a role in setting up this country as a beacon of religious. And by the way, historically, the church has thrived in America, right? We have done the vast majority of worldwide missions have been launched from the United States of America, right? I think of the Second Great Awakening, right? Where it was a Bible study movement that ended up spreading around the world and reviving interest in scripture. That started in America, in the East Coast and the Midwest, right? The state where I'm in now, Michigan was a lot of it, but New York as well, and parts of Massachusetts. That's where this whole awakening started and it spread around the world, the knowledge of scripture, right? So I just think what we have here is so rare in the history of this world, right? We should protect it, right? Like that constitution, like it's gold, right? So threats from the left and threats from the right should be opposed, I definitely believe. And I want to put the quote back up because I like that first part. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free size thereof. And I think that's where my liberal friends get it wrong. They think that all religions should be excluded from every avenue of the public square. And if you read that, once again, I'll put it back up. It says, or pivoting the free exercise thereof. Look, I don't want to enforce my religious views upon you, 
but my views are informed by my religious views and they should have a say in the public square. As long as I don't violate your religious views, then mine and yours have are going to inform who we are as people. They inform our characters. And for me and for you, Joey, I know that the bottom line is we are called to love God. That's our private relationship with our faith, right? We love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. But then the second part of that is that I appeal to all who disagree with, is that I'm going to love you as God has commanded me to love you. I'm going to love you. The second commandment of that says, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to treat you in a loving manner, but where we disagree, part of that love is to share the disagreement, and hopefully we can do it amicably. Yeah, and to your point about displays of religion in the public square, that is a part of our country's history, and I think that's good. Right. Like, for instance, right. I know in our courtrooms, we make people swear on the Bible. I mean, also, if Muslims can swear on other books and stuff. Historically, people have sworn on the Bible. I think that's a good thing. I think that's an honorable thing. I think of in my church, right, on our, our platform, we have the American flag, right? What do I think that symbolizes? I think that symbolizes that we're grateful to live in a country that gives us the freedom of speech, right? And I don't think any of these kind of displays are bad. I think they're a good thing. So I would say our liberal friends would say that's a violation of separation of church and state. I simply just don't agree with that. Because really exercise it. Our Congress people, they have a freedom of religion as well. I think of Chaplain Barry Black of the U.S. Senate. He's a chaplain hired by the Senate and he leads the Senate in prayer. I know he leads Bible studies with Senate members. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, no, it's not, right? You, you can exercise your religion even in public, in the public square, even in government. I think, no, I know every single one of our presidents that we've ever had, including Biden, including President Trump, Obama, have quoted scripture in speeches. That's a part of our American culture, and that's part of the First Amendment. And so sometimes some people say, no, we got to get all signs of religion out of government. And that's like what you're pointing to the French Revolution. So I don't agree with that either. And what you said about all our presidents quoting scripture, that is fine and dandy. As long as they're not trying to pass laws that uphold one church over another or even uphold one religion over another, because that wouldn't be fair to others of different faith, like Muslims and Jews, because this is the beauty of this country, and it's the first time ever in the known history where there is that freedom of plurality, that freedom to worship not only the Christian God, purported gods of Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism. We need to learn to get along without denying that we all have our faiths, and yet without imposing one particular faith over the other. That being said, when the liberal side says, oh, we have to get rid of all religion, we just saw Sam Smith in the Grammys promoting devil-type worship, where he was dressed in satanic clothing-type or imagery. Satanism is not a secular thing. It is a religious thing, yet they are applauding that. So you can't have it both ways. And what Joey and I are after is that you have to be consistent in your argument. If you're going to deny Christianity, then you have to deny 
anything appealing to the occult as well, because that's a religion that's not secular. So you have to be consistent. And I think our worldview, a biblical worldview, is the most consistent with the world we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about what Michael Knoll said. Even though religion is declining here in Europe, where many people fled from to find religious liberty here in the United States, Christianity is declining very quickly. And we want to talk about a couple of points that this article make, and I'll bring it up here. Take us through this article because it's fascinating. And uh, yeah, share with us what you want to point out. And we'll link this in the show notes too, if anybody wants to read the whole thing. But I'm just going to read these points here. So number one, it says, Secular, secularization is widespread in Western Europe, but most people in the region still identify as Christian. We go on to the second point. It says, even though most people identify as Christian in the region, few regularly attend church. And if you go and you look up other articles, you Google about the secularization of Europe, you can see Europe has greatly secularized very rapidly, particularly since the Second World War. Europe is just secularized like crazy. And Europe, the establishment of religion, that was Europe. Like both Protestant countries and Catholic countries, right? That's how it was divided, right? Germany established the, the Lutheran church, right? Obviously Rome and many countries, Spain, stuff had Catholic establishments. You know, England still has an established church to this day, the Church of England, right? Europe was the land of establishment, right? And so if that was the thing that kept Christianity true and pure and kept people moral, then you'd expect Europe to be this vibrant Christian sin today. But what we've seen is, while there's been a secularization trend in the United States as well, the United States is still far more religious than Western Europe. We have not secularized to the degree that they have. There are far more people who regularly attend church. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, right? So for my integralist Catholic friends or my Christian national Protestant friends, I would point you to Europe and say, if establishment worked, right, if it was so good, then why is Europe so secular? And why is Protestant America so much more religious? And I would say, because there's two kinds of power for the church, right? There's the power of the state, right? And that's a power that can animate churches. It has in the past. And then there's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And I believe that when churches and when Christians have they've lost the power of the Holy Spirit, right? When they've lost good Bible religion, right? That causes them to love God with all their heart and love their fellow man. When they've lost that power, that's when they start seeking the power of the state. That's when they start seeking the sword because they've lost the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I want, I want to see, listen, I think I want the same thing in many ways that Michael wants. I want to see the church have the full power of the gospel, right? But I want that through the power of the Holy Spirit, not the state. And I think when we see a revival of one writer called it primitive godliness, when we see that, we won't need the clamor for the state to give the church power to go out and use the sword to convert. Right? A conversion by the sword is no conversion, right? That's a lot of things, right? It creates a lot of liars, but that's not a conversion. That's not what I want. I want people whose hearts are transformed by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first no doubt. In this quote here in the article that I want to point out, the second point, it says, even though most identify as Christian in the region, few regularly attend church. And I think that's the danger there. When religion, when Christianity becomes just a cultural thing, 
and not a heart thing, then you get Christians appealing to the state. But when it becomes a heart issue, then you seek that balance that you and I are trying to promote. The last thing I want is to go back to the medieval church where they would prosecute and kill people and burn people at the stake or pull people apart or hang them simply because they did not believe what the church was teaching. I want to prevent that. And what's dangerous to me, and I'll use that word dangerous of what Michael Knowles was saying, is that he is unwittingly or wittingly mixing and heading us back in that direction where the church has secular power. The church does not need secular power. It's never needed secular power. The church thrives when it has Holy Spirit power. And we as citizens of the United States do not need to appeal to the state in order for our ideas that we believe are good for everybody to permeate the culture. Absolutely. And the other thing that I want to say about this is, right, political power corrupts, right? That's why our constitution divides power among three branches of the federal government and it divides power between the federal government and the state's government because it doesn't, and we don't have a king, right? These things does that to divide power because concentrated power corrupts those it's concentrated into. And that's why I think our constitution is so brilliant. But what happens when the church takes on that political power? What do we see? What did we see in the Middle Ages church? We saw corruption, right? And I believe it was actually a Catholic writer who said this, but he, and I thought it was really true. But he said, the road to hell will be paved with the souls <laughs> of bishops. Because these bishops, what would they do? They would sell indulgences, right? So in other words, people would coming, they wanted the forgiveness of Christ, right? And they'd committed sins, they'd done wrong things. So they'd come to the priest, and then the priests in the Middle Ages would say, yeah, you can be redeemed, you can be saved, but you need to first, you need to buy this indulgence, right? And yeah, then we'll, you'll receive absolution. And that was one of the things that prompted Martin Luther to nail his 95 thesis. That was one of his 95 points was this sale of indulgences. But this corruption comes, right? Because then they see, because think about it, a relationship with Christ and your spiritual destiny, that's the most intimate thing about you. So what won't a person do right? If they think their spiritual life is on the line. And when you introduce this power dynamic, right? Over people's spiritual lives, you just lead the way for corruption because the priests are no more holy than any one of the rest of us, right? They're prone to corruption too. And so when you give them political power, right? Or when you give pastors political power, you just, you incentivize the worst in human nature. They get greedy with that power. And I want to show you a quote. I just looked it up which I think summarizes what we're trying to say. And it was by Ben Franklin. And I think you've seen this quote before, but it's a wonderful quote. It says, when a religion is good, I conceive it will support itself. And when it does not support itself and God does not take care to support it so that its professors are obliged to call for help of the civil power, tis a sign I apprehend of its being a bad one. So to summarize from the Old English, if the church has to appeal to the state for power, then it's not a good church. It's not a good religion. And I think Ben Franklin nailed it there when summarizing what we're trying to sum up. Sum up. Yes, our religious views have right to be in the public square, but we're not going to appeal to the authority of the state. 
And we don't want the liberal left to appeal to the authority of the state to enforce their anti-religious views as well. Let's segue to the second portion of this next clip. Joey, introduce us to this next clip, which is about Governor Sanu and his thing before we show it to the audience. Yeah, so this was actually a really interesting clip because here Michael's critiquing an actual a conservative Republican governor, <laughs> someone I actually like, but he's critiquing him on very interesting grounds. And so, well, we can just play the clip and then we'll flush it out. It'll be illuminating. Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, says that he's going to run for president, or at least he's strongly implying that he's going to run for president. And here's his platform. You've been talking about trying to remind the party that Republicans are about limited government. Yeah. You said recently Republicans are almost trying to outdo Democrats at their own game of being big government and having a solution and a say on everything. Who are you thinking of when you say oh, there's, that? There's a lot. I think there's a lot of leadership out there that forget that forgets at heart. I'm a principled free market conservative. Let the markets decide. So there's no individual per se, but there's a lot of leadership that says, you know what? When we're not getting that result out of a private business or a locality, we'll just impose from the top down our conservative will. You're not talking about the Florida yeah. governor and Disney, for example. That's a bad example. Yeah, that's an example. One, one of the many examples. Ron DeSantis may be running for president sure, as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Ron's a very good governor. He is. But I'm just trying to remind folks what we are at our core. And if we're trying to beat the Democrats at being big government authoritarians, remember what's going to happen. Eventually, they'll have power in a state or in a position, and then they'll start penalizing conservative businesses and conservative nonprofits and conservative ideas. That is the worst precedent in the world. That's exactly what the founding fathers tried not to, tried to avoid. And the award for the most out-of-touch Republican goes to, drumroll please, Governor Chris Sununu. Wow, congratulations. Oh my goodness. It's as though Chris Sununu, he got, he was cryogenically frozen in 2010 or 2009. And he just, maybe even earlier, and he froze there and he just was melted out of that freeze. And he said, hey guys, we, if we ever use the government, the liberals might use it against us. Oh, Chris, you must have missed the last 10 years. Really, you must have missed the last 70 years of U.S. politics. They're already doing that. But guys, if we do anything to fight back in the real world, then the Democrats might hypothetically keep doing what they've been doing for 70 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a hypothetical then. It's not if we do this, then they might do this. That's not the situation. The situation we're in is the libs are already doing the thing. And the question to us is, are we going to fight back in a just way in accord with what the founding fathers wanted? I love when these people invoke the founding fathers say, the founding fathers would never want us to wield political power. Bro, what, where do you, what are you talking about? We had many more social regulations at the time of the founding fathers. We had many more social regulations even 20 years ago than we do today. We had blasphemy laws on the books for much of this country's history. We had blue laws all over the place. We had very strict immigration controls for much of this country's history. We had very strong standards that we enforced with the weight of the government, with the weight of the state, on education, on religion, on social norms between men and women, all of that. What if we, if we start, listen, I'm a strong conservative. I want to cut taxes. Yeah, life is about more than cutting. I like cutting taxes too, but countries are about more than that. Life is about more than that. What a waste. Elect me and I'll keep using the same loser strategy that cost us the entire culture, wouldn't even allow conservatives to conserve the women's bathroom. There was a lot there, brother. Go ahead. I'll give you the first word. So the first thing I want to say, first of all, I like Governor Sununu. The one thing I would say is that neither of them, and obviously if you're in a news clip, there's only so much you can say, 
but neither of them really got to the heart of the principle of, again, I'm going to come back to this a lot throughout this podcast, the two tablets, right? Mm -hmm. There is natural law. There's the last six commandments. There's worship, right? So in other words, for instance, the law that was brought up by the news anchor about Ron DeSantis and Disney, I actually agreed with that law, right? I think when a company accepts benefits from the government and then they try to sexualize children, I think the government can take those benefits that it gave away. So I agree with that law. I just wanted to, I wanted to say that. But no, the principle that Governor Sununu is laying out is just basic wisdom, right? It's, the, first of all, the principle of, yeah, if you give the government a certain power to wield it in ways that you think are just, whether they are or not, eventually your opponent in a democratic system, eventually at some point, your opponents are going to have their hand on those same levels of power. I think of an interesting example from the Senate that happened, I don't remember exactly what year, but it was shortly, it was around the time, I think it was around the death of Antonin Scalia. Yeah, it was, around, it was after the death of Antonin Scalia, who was a Supreme Court justice, a conservative Supreme Court justice. When he died, pre- President Barack Obama was president. The Democrats controlled the Senate where they appoint nominees. And before there had been a thing called the judicial filibuster, meaning that in order to get a justice through, you had to have two thirds of the Senate right, to vote in favor. It's had 50% of the Senate, but they didn't have two thirds. And so what they did, it was the, minor, the majority leader at the time was Democratic Senator Harry Reid. And they broke, they voted to break the filibuster, meaning all you needed was a simple majority. And the minority leader, right, Republican Mitch McConnell, he said, you will rue the day that you got rid of the judicial <laughs> filibuster. And ultimately, what happened is because the judicial filibuster has been gotten rid of, Republicans have appointed, I think, three good justices right in the Trump administration without two-thirds vote because the Democrats blew up the rule that was actually it was a decent rule because it meant that you had to get agreement from the from both parties in order to get candidates through. But they blew it up thinking we have the power now. If we can get a justice through, it's worth blowing up this filibuster. Right. So they de- they lost sight of foresight and seeing that eventually from the Democratic perspective, Republicans are going to control the Senate again. So it's, if you blow up this rule that benefits us all, it's going to hurt you too. And I think the point that Governor Sununu was bringing is a good one. And it is these principles. And I like that he said limited government, not small government, because limited government implies that we want limits on the power of government, the scope of government. But it's not small. We have a we have a 330 million people, right? We have 50 states. We have several territories, right? It's going to be a big government, right, in size, but it's limited in the scope of its power. And I'll give Michael a little bit of credit here. He's right that sometimes libertarians can just not want to do anything with government. Government exists for a reason. Romans 13 clearly lays out that God has invested earthly governments with power and authority. So it's like there are just things that they can do in the realm of the last six commandments, right? In the realm of the natural law, right? The point you brought out earlier of protecting children. I think of abortion, right? Yeah, I want the government to outlaw all like all elective abortion, certainly, right? Anything other than to save the physical life of the mother, which technically isn't really abortion, but the discussion for another day. So it's like, yeah, I want the government to do just things, but we have to lay out the principle of what that is. And I think Governor Sununu was making a really good attempt at that. I applaud him. And that's where, once again, with Michael, let me start with him before I get to the governor, is I agree in principle, but the way we 
play it out is different because once again, he's talking about we had blue laws and blasphemy laws and we need to protect children. Those three things are not the same, meaning blasphemy laws and blue laws deal with the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, which we should not impinge on religious freedom of people. Protecting children is in the second tablet. And yes, I'm gun ho for that, which brings me back to Sununu. Protecting children is the role of the government. And if a company is not going to protect children, then the government needs to step in. That has nothing to do with religion. That has to do with the fact that all of us should be in the business of protecting our children. And if we differ on what that protection looks like, every, every opinion and every voice should have equal voice in the public square. And that's where... DeSantis is not doing that on his own, per se. He was voted by the majority of people in Florida who are expressing their, re, not their views on morality based not on the church, but on common sense and decency. And in that sense, DeSantis is not acting as a dictator. He's protecting his constituency who voted him in and thereby freedom is expressed by who we vote. DeSantis is not going to stay there forever. You can vote him up. Yeah, and the other thing I would, the difference I would lay out is Disney can still make the woke crap that they're making. It just, they can't do it with the same government benefits that they had before. So it's not, not depriving them of their freedom of speech. They can still say the same stuff they're saying, but they're just not going to get the same benefits from the government. So the next clip we're going to watch is President John F. Kennedy. And he was a Democratic president from a different era. <laughs> I would say quite a different kind of Democrat than what we're used to seeing today. But I disagree with him on some things. But I think this clip that we're going to show represented an attitude he had. For one, he was a stalwart anti-communist, which I love that. But I think the clip we're going to show really illustrates something deeply American about President Kennedy. So we'll get into that and then we'll discuss that as we wrap up. Reverend Mesa. Reverend Rock, I'm grateful for your generous invitation to state my views. While this religious issue is necessarily and properly the chief topic here tonight, I want to emphasize from the outset that I believe that we have far more critical issues in the 1960 campaign. The spread of communist influence until it now festers only 90 miles from the coast of Florida. The humiliating treatment of our president and vice president by those who no longer respect our power. The hungry children I saw in West Virginia the old people who cannot pay their doctor's bills, the families forced to give up their farms, and America with too many slums, with too few schools, and too late to the moon and outer space. These are the real issues which should decide this campaign. And they are not religious issues. For war and hunger and ignorance and despair, no, no religious barrier. But because I am a Catholic, and no Catholic has ever been elected president, the real issues in this campaign have been obscured, perhaps deliberately, in some quarters less responsible than this. So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, not what kind of church I believe in, for that should be important only to me, but what kind of America I believe in. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president 
who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will, or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew, or a Quaker, or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers, for example, that led to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. Today I may be the victim, but tomorrow it may be you, until the whole fabric of our harmonious society is ripped apart at a time of great national peril. Finally, I believe in an America where religious intolerance will someday end, where all men and all churches are treated as equals, where every man has the same right to attend or not to attend the church of his choice, where there is no Catholic vote, no anti-Catholic vote, no block voting of any kind, and where Catholics, Protestants, and Jews at both the lay and the pastoral levels will refrain from those attitudes of disdain and division which have so often marred their works in the past and promote instead the American ideal of brotherhood. That is the kind of America in which I believe, and it represents the kind of presidency in which I believe. A great office that must be neither humbled by making it the instrument of any religious group, nor tarnished by arbitrarily withholding it, its occupancy from the members of any one religious group. I believe in a president whose views on religion are his own private affair neither imposed upon him by the nation, nor imposed by the nation upon him as a condition to holding that office. So the one thing that I would say I slightly disagree with is he said, or he said no church or no minister or whatever should or indirectly influence politics. Well, I don't necessarily think that's true, the politics of the nation. I don't necessarily think that. I think directly, absolutely. But what does indirectly mean? If he means by indirectly, like, subtle hints that like you should do that pass this legislation then i agree but it's indirectly influencing the politics of the nation to preach truth right to preach for instance a good example is evangelical churches particularly in the north during the times of slavery many pulpits could be heard preaching against the sin of slavery i think of one of the founders of my church where they were very abolitionist and they actually one of the founders of my church actually told members of our church that they could not vote for that uh, they could not in good conscience vote for anything that would uphold the institution of slavery so i think in a way that's an indirect so I, I, it's just a slight disagreement right i think when you're talking to your parishioners you should talk about principles and that's that might cross that line but i don't think that my church or my pastor should have the authority to force me to vote anyway or should be given the hand of the state so that's that was my only slight agreement but other than that what John F. Kennedy's laying out here is a uniquely American view that all men are created equal and that we have the right, and that's what we're going to come back to, is right, the right to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, meaning the state does not have the authority to shut our church down because of a pandemic, and the state does not have the authority to force us to put something in our body, right, if we may believe 
that it's not good for us, right? And we believe our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And also the church does not have the authority to force someone else to worship the way they believe God is telling them to worship. Yeah, and what I like about the Kennedy clip is that you can tell he's at least thinking about both sides of the aisle. He is thinking about truth and how that truth affects both sides of the aisle. Today, we have too many ideologues, people both on the right and on the left who only see their view. But to me, truth stands in the middle. The left may have some truth. The right may have some truth. But we need to seek ultimate truth. And that balance is critical if we're going to continue to thrive as a nation. My issue or what I see coming to this country is that right now we are in the media and in politics way left. There's going to be a swing back to hard right. And what I fear and what I know is going to happen is that it's going to go too far. And the very abuses that the right is now decrying on the left, they are going to be tempted and will yield on the right. And Joey and I promise our listeners and our audience that we're going to keep it based on truth, neither far right nor far left, because it's not a middle ground. It's a different ground. It is truth. And that's what we're after. And I hope everybody listening is after truth and not after party politics. Party politics will be the ruin of this country. We need to seek after truth. Joey, any final thoughts as we wrap up? I like the point that you said it's not a middle ground, it's a different ground. Because sometimes, especially when you look at different issues, right, the truth may be more on the right, or the truth may be more on the left, say in something like traditionally they've been more in favor of like freedom of expression and freedom of speech, not so much the woke left. The truth on any particular issue may be more with the left or the right, whatever, and we'll discuss that. But so it's not an issue of being directly in the center, right? I don't want a middle ground between killing babies and not killing babies, right? I don't mm -hmm. want a middle ground between sexualizing children and not. But it's like, we're going to stand on truth and we're going to stand on firm principles. I like what Governor Sununu said is, I'm a principled conservative, right? So it's not like I'm going to go with any fad on the right, but it's, or I'm going to go with any fad on the left. I'm going to go for the truth, right? And I'm going to pursue truth and justice and to quote Superman, right? Make it all the way in the American way. <laughs> Truth, justice, and the American. Yes. And above all, do it God's way. Frank Sinatra didn't have it right when he said, I did it my way. Joey and I want to do it God's way. And God's way is respecting the freedom of the individual. But we know that when you violate truth, it has its consequences. Joey, another great episode, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. Comment below. And subscribe. Yes. Hi, right, brother. Take care. Be blessed.